Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. Okay, so a few clarifications before I jump in. A good sermon introduction pulls the congregation in. I'm not going to do that today because of the topic. I'm just going to give you some clarification points, which is a horrible way to do an introduction, but here we are (laughs) because of the subject matter. Uh, Number one, as you can see, we're talking about uh, sexual sin, sexual morality, sexual brokenness. So number one, we have to first of all have this conversation, realizing that what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can stand in judgment above someone else whose sins might look different than ours, whose struggles might look different than ours. We need to be honest about this first and foremost, and we need to realize before Jesus, we are all broken sinners, okay? So we have to humble ourselves before we have a conversation here. Also, I heard a a theologian one time say, north of puberty... All of us are sexually broken in some way. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us in our own way. And so we also have to come and acknowledge that, is that uh, we are all sin- sinners. And, and especially in the area of, of, of sex, I, especially in the culture we live in right now, none of us have gotten it perfectly right. None of our thought lives are perfectly correct. Uh, it's, it's all difficult. It's all hard. And we need to have grace as we deal with this. So uh, the sermon I'm preaching, I'm not coming up here saying, I'm the moral exemplar, and none of us should either. This is something we've all struggled with, which is why it's in the Bible. Also, as a side note, uh, over the last, I don't know, let's say 20 years, the way that the church in America in general, not every church, has uh, dealt with LGBTQ plus neighbors has been really abysmal. any conversation we have to have with anybody or any group of people or however anyone identifies themselves is to start off saying, you are made in the image of God. Jesus shed his blood for you. You have intrinsic value. And then we can have conversations, but it has to start from a place of love. It has to start from a place of affirmation of the person made in the image of God. And so the church is not... The church globally has not generally done a good job in the last 20 years of affirming that. The second point I want to make as a point of clarification is that sexual immorality, sexual sin, is not the same as being sexually abused. Statistically, there are some of you, many of you in here, that have been sexually abused in your life. Those are mutually exclusive categories. Those are totally different. And all the sex abuse survivors I have talked to. They feel guilt. They feel shame. They feel like they have sinned. That is not possible. You have not sinned if you were sexually abused. You were sinned against. You were sinned against. What a a perpetrator does is he or she takes their own guilt and their own sin, and they put the shame of it all onto their victims. And so years will go by, decades will go by, and the victim, the survivor feels like, oh, I've done something wrong, I've done something wrong. No, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, it's not what Paul's talking about today. And also, as an aside, and that's not what I'm talking about today. Uh, As an aside, though, happy to sit down and listen to you and walk through the journey with you if you need that, uh, because I know it's a terrible, terrible thing to endure. Uh, Finally, third 
is in our culture right now, there is an idea that uh, the Bible's vision for sex, both in the Old and New Testament, is old-fashioned and out of date. Uh, the Bible's vision for sex is that uh, marriage, is, that uh, sex is to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in marriage. That is what God designed it for, and that is what is holy, that is what is good, that is what is sacred. That's God's design. Outside of that is outside of God's plan. It's brokenness, and, and, it's, and it's sin. The current narrative says that that is old-fashioned and they just don't know any better. No, it's actually, that view of sex is actually incredibly progressive, is actually incredibly forward-thinking. Why? Well, if you go back into the Old Testament, uh, Judaism was born out of uh, Israel's slavery in Egypt, right? They were slaves in Egypt, and as they came out, God was giving them the law. And in Leviticus 18 and then later 20, you can read it on your own time, God tells the Israelites, when you go into the promised land, do not practice the sexual practices of the Egyptians who you're coming out of, or the Canaanites whose land you're going into. And then he lists all the kinds of things that they do, which I'm not going to enumerate here because it's gross. (laughs) It's a lot. I mean, you want to talk about a permissive culture that says, oh, here's all these options, right? So compared to the ancient Egyptians and Canaanites, you know, what we have currently in our society, very small. What they practiced was wide and huge and massive. In the book of Ephesians in Ephesus, the sexual practices that they practices. You think, oh, like things have opened up recently? No, 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 no. Back in in Greco-Roman culture, their options were much wider and huge. And out of that, both in Judaism and then later in Christianity, God came and he said, look, I'm, as their societies are functioning, this, this, um, this kind of open uh, sexual desire thing, it's destroying you, it's destroying your own souls. Because in ancient Egyptian, ancient uh, Canaanite society, in ancient Greco-Roman culture, what sex was... Uh, it, was, I, it was about the strong taking advantage of the weak. It was about people using each other. And even if it wasn't the strong taking advantage of the weak, people had uh, so many different relationships with so many different people that it became more of a, a function rather than a, a, an activity of love. It became a, um, a matter of, uh, of just self-gratification rather than a mutual uh, respect and a mutual giving and a mutual care and compassion. God comes along, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, he says, I have a better vision. Instead of using sex to use other people to fulfill your own gratification, put it within this this confine of marriage between one man and one woman, and then it can. It has the potential. It won't always. There are bad marriages. There are bad people in marriages, but it has the better potential for mutual love, mutual respect, And not only that, but then when life comes onto the scene, now you have people who love each other who can love this child as well. It's a totally different image. And so this idea that that biblical sexuality is old-fashioned and out of date, uh, no, no, that's not true. It was this idea that God injected into many cultures and say there is a better way. Sex does not have to be about... um, your own personal gratification. It doesn't have to be about taking advantage of other people. It doesn't have to result in victims. Instead, it can be a beautiful thing of mutual love, mutual satisfaction, mutual care. So, of course, I say all that, 
as clarifications, my wife said, that's too long of a clarification. You need to jump into the text before you do that. Well, it's too late, Kristen. (laughs) But with my clarification number one, all have sinned fall short of the glory of God. How can we overcome our sexual brokenness? Right? We look at it as our society. How can we overcome our sexual brokenness? What Paul says is absolutely incredible here. Uh, I've... I've read this text so many times, and it amazed me that I've never understood it this way. Chapter 5, verse 3. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Aha, it's a Thanksgiving message. You're like, why are we doing the Thanksgiving message like this? I was going to do something totally different. And then I was reading the text. I was like, oh my goodness, this is a Thanksgiving message. So he says sexual immorality. Uh, my translation says sex, sexual immorality. Other translations will say fornication. Fornication is a better word because fornication is a very clear word that means any kind of sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, clearly what that means and what Paul's talking about. He says sexual immorality, all impurity, should not be known among you. It's not proper amongst God's people. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul, this is crazy. Last week we saw if you have habitual sins that you are struggling with, the best thing that we can do is to be filled with the love of Christ. It's not a matter of willpower to overcome your sin, be filled with the love of Christ. That is still true, but Paul understands the, the, the nature of, of our sexual drive and our sexual urges. And so he said this, he added another layer. Yes, be filled with the love of Christ, but also let there be thanksgiving. How do we overcome our sexual brokenness? Through thanksgiving to God, through gratitude to God. Paul's image is whenever we feel the sexual impulses that are improper in our lives, instead of acting on them, instead of taking motion, instead retrain our brains, retrain our minds, retrain our souls, and say, thank you, God. He explains this a little bit further in verse 5. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater. Basically, he's saying you can turn sex into an idol, a false god, if that is your whole drive in life, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So Paul, he's, he's got some pretty rough language. He says, everyone who's sexually immoral or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Wow. I don't think what Paul is saying, if you mess up sexually, that you're out. Because remember, he's talking to the church in Ephesus. They literally had sexual practices as part of their religious services in the temples of their false gods. Right? So I don't think he's saying, like, you're, if you messed up once, you're out of the kingdom, buddy. No, what he's saying is a Christian's life needs to be characterized by repentance. When we mess up, we repent. Jesus is faithful to purify us from all unrighteousness. But if your life is characterized by saying, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to do whatever in the world I want, you haven't been transformed by Christ. 
The Holy Spirit isn't convicting you on a regular basis. You're not struggling with the sin anymore or ever. Maybe you're Christian in name only. When I talk to people who are struggling with sexual addictions or sins, like, you know, watching pornography, the, the, the main thing that I'm looking for is, is it someone who doesn't care about the struggle? You know, their, their spouse found them and now, you know, they're all angry about it. And the person doesn't really care just that they've been caught. Or do they hate their struggle, but they just can't stop? If they hate their struggle and they just can't stop, you know what? That's a good thing. That means the Spirit's working in them. That means there's hope because they know what they're doing is wrong. They just lack the power to stop. That's what Paul's getting at. He's not saying if you mess up once that you're out of the kingdom. No, he's saying if your life is characterized by these things and you don't care what Christ says, you don't care what the Word says, have you even trusted in Jesus? Paul's image here is to essentially remap our brains, remap our minds over and over and over again. Whenever we have um, un, un, or whenever we have sinful sexual impulses, instead of acting on them, instead of stewing on them, instead of trying to willpower our way out of that, instead of beating us up, even beating ourselves up and say, why are you thinking that? You're so horrible. Instead, he says, no, when you have those impulses, respond with thanksgiving to God. And I don't even think thanksgiving of like a... A life, well, I guess I should just be thankful for whatever you've given me in my life now. No, I just, like, just whatever you have to be thankful for. God, thank you for the life I have. Thank you for the family that I have. Thank you for the friends that I have. Thank you. I love you. I care for you. Thank you. Over and over and over again, you're remapping your brain. You're renewing your mind, as Paul says in Romans 12. Um, back when Chris and I were in northern Michigan, they, uh, they decided to uh, redirect one of the rivers. Decades ago, an entire century ago, they put up all of these, these dams on the Boardman River. And at some point, they decided, we don't want them here anymore, and we want to have the river flow without the dams. I don't know why, I don't know what the reason was, but the state decided to do that. So they said, we're going to uh, release the water from the dams. Now, you can't just do that, right? Because if you do that, all the houses that are built over here, they just get flooded. So they had to do this systematically. And what they would do is, well, you can see some of the work over here, but man, they had so much excavation equipment working and they had engineers trying to figure out where the water was going to go and they'd release a little water and see where the water would go because it's hard to control water, isn't it? And so they dig and 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 they dig paths and then they release it and realize it's going a different way. So then they'd have to dig somewhere deeper or they'd have to put up a larger embankment. And they did this for years. And of course, it was an imperfect process. At one point, one of the dams failed. failed. I, got, it was, I got a call on my cell phone. It's like, warning, flood warning, get out of there. And I'm like... It's a sunny day. I'm like, what do you mean flood warning? <laughs> well, one of the dams fell. They didn't bother to tell us. The dam fell. That's why it's a flood warning. I'm like, well, there's no rain, so it's fine. No, in a matter of minutes, the boardman went from like down there to like up to the roof. It was incredible. And, uh, and then, you know, just kind of went down and flooded a number of homes. Thank God no one was hurt. That, I think, is what happens if we choose to follow Paul's prescription, Paul's path. If you're here and you have unhealthy sexual thoughts like the vast majority of us, myself included, um, you're not going to be able to overcome that sin immediately. It's not like, okay, I'm going to you know, just be thankful to God and we'll get on. The no, it's, it's, it's a process. It's like redirecting a river. 
You don't just go like, all right, we're going to just take a backhoe and drag it down the river one day and then we're good. No, that, this thing took like two years. And I'd watch on the other bank as the kids would watch the backhoes just pulling out dirt, throwing dirt other places. It's a process. And you know what? It's a messy process because sometimes you make a mistake, right? With the, and a house or two gets flooded. But the repentance of Christ is always there. He will always restore us. He will always care for us. He will always walk alongside of us. I've never seen this before. I have never read it in a book. I've never heard anyone talk about it, but it makes perfect sense. How do we overcome sexual morality? By thanksgiving to God. We redirect our minds. We redirect our thoughts. This makes sense, too, because when I was, um, when I was young, there was a lot of popular speakers, and they'd say to young men only, but they should have said to young women, too, but they would say to young men, like, hey, guys, you see, like, a lady that you like, like, you see something you like, or I just bounce your eyes. Don't even look at her. I just bounce your eyes away. Anyone ever hear that before? Bounce your eyes, you know? Um, no one, ever. Okay, I heard it everywhere, and it's everywhere. And if, if I put it on Twitter, people will be like, yeah, I heard that, right? Bounce your eyes. Just bounce your eyes. Don't look away. Or look away. Now, part of the problem is they would direct that only to the guys because they're like, only guys are visually stimulated, right? Well, that's not true. Women are too. And you know what the proof is? On Saturday Night Live just a few weeks ago, Jason Momoa was there, and when he whipped off his shirt in one of the skits, there were all kind of ladies making catcalls. And you know what? I also know it's not true because I just mentioned that, and some of you after church are going to go on to YouTube and say, I want to go watch that Saturday Night Live episode now. But that idea of bounce your eyes, it's a problem. Look, it is a problem if, a, if anyone is leering at another person and be like, yeah, I like that body. <laughs> That's creepy and awful and wrong, <laughs> right? But the opposite makes it as worse because when someone is like, yeah, look at that. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is you turn the person into an object instead of a person. But that prescription of bounce your eyes Hey, guys, just bounce your eyes. Just look away. Pretend like she doesn't even exist. That's a problem, too, because you've done the same thing and you've turned the person into an object. You have. I said, well, there's someone that I could possibly fall with, first of all, probably way out of your league. But second of all, you've now objectified the person by saying, I can't even look at that. No, no. I think Paul's prescription works better. If you see someone that you find physically attractive, Thanksgiving. Wow, God, thank you for making that person incredibly attractive. I know I'm going to cut, I'm, someone's going to be like, this doesn't sound right. No, God, like, God made men and women, and there are beautiful men and women. And if you're seeing someone who's be- beautiful, you say, wow, God, thank you for making that beautiful person. And then move on with your life. Don't turn them into an object to be like, oh no, here comes a temptress, I got to get away. No. People are people, not objects. Don't bounce your eyes. Praise God for the beautiful person he made. Paul gives an example here, too, in verse 11. He says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that do, they do in secret. Yeah, I read verse 12. For it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in, in secret. And I was like, oh, yeah, like uh, any of you who've read up on the stories of Harvey Weinstein and and um, Jeffrey Epstein, it's like, oh, you don't even want to read it. It's so bad. And what does Paul say? Expose it. 
But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So Paul's prescription is shine a light on it. So if you're struggling with sexual immorality, shine a light on it. Talk to someone you can trust. I'm struggling with this. It's not going to overcome the issue immediately, but it will help. Sin. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people and they come into my office or they call me up and they're like shaking, visibly shaking. I got to tell you something, right? And they're like, and they tell me what it is. And I got to tell you, I, I mean, I'm always scared to say this because the depth of human depravity knows no ends. But I got to tell you, after talking with people for 23 years about issues, there is nothing you can tell me that I haven't heard anymore or will that absolutely surprise me. There really isn't. And people are like, oh no, I got to tell you. And they tell me and it's like, okay, are you repenting? Yes. Jesus forgives you of your sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all unrighteousness. You can walk in a newness of life. Paul says, bring it out into the light. Sin lies to you. Sin's like, man, if they knew you, they would just get rid of you. No, that's not true. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. We are all humble beggars before Jesus. We all need Jesus. Anyone who comes with moral superiority, run the other direction. Because, man, we are one of the godliest people I know. I heard him talking about himself. He said, I am a maggot compared to the righteousness of Christ. That's someone I want to listen to. We're all in the same boat, church. He says, shine a light on it. In fact, I think that's why the church in America is struggling so much, because when they find their leaders or their pastors in sexual sin of some sort or another, what do they do? They cover it up and they try to hide it and they try to minimize it. No, expose it! And then it loses its power. Yes, the person has to resign, but it loses its power. So some of you are like, wait a minute, why, you know, how is Thanksgiving analogous to sex? This is kind of a weird thing. Well, it's a really easy answer. When you eat the Thanksgiving meal, after you've eaten all that, nobody's thinking about sex. All you want is a nap. Okay, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Although that is true. <laughs> no, this, this idea of giving gratitude to God when we have these sexual impulses, this is, this is an ancient idea. Paul said in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what we've understood now in neuroscience is that you can actually remap your brain. If you continue to do the same things over and over again, it changes your brain chemistry. It changes your neural pathways. And so if when you have these unhealthy or sinful sexual impulses, if you are saying, God, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank you for everything you've done in my life. Thank you for my family. Thank you for the food you give me. Thank you for the roof over my head. All right? If you do that, guess what? You're changing your brain chemistry. You're changing your soul a little bit at a time. Doesn't mean you won't stumble. Don't, doesn't mean you won't have a hardship. It takes time, but over and over and over again. In fact, that's why pornography is so insidious right now. We should take a page out of uh, the, the Iceland government's handbook. They have declared it a public emergency because they've looked at the science and they realize that pornography, and we can, we, can, we can hook up people's brains and see this, okay? So this isn't a question of debate. Pornography is literally rewiring our brains. When you begin, when you are looking at pornography, it starts changing your mind, and the longer you do it, the less you see people as people and the more you see them as objects. You hook up the brain to... Uh, uh, EKG, 
that the right one? Anyways, you hook up your brain, and, and they show a picture of a normal person. And if you've been using pornography for, pornography for a long time, instead of the part of the brain that lights up that says, oh, this is a person, the part of the brain lights up that says, oh, this is an object. You wonder what's wrong with our society right now? You wonder why people hate each other so much? You wonder why there's so much violence? It's because we don't see each other as people made in the image of God. We see people as objects for our own gratification. And if they're not doing what we want to do, we can do whatever we want to them because they're just objects. They're not people. That's what pornography is doing. The Netherlands is on the, the verge of it. The I Iceland has already declared it a public emergency. And we here in America, we're like, no, this is a freedom of speech issue. It's not a freedom of speech issue. It's absolutely not because the vast majority of pornography online that's free out there is, is filled with people who are coerced, who are trafficked, right? There's nothing free speech about saying, I should have the right to watch someone perform who's been, been kidnapped or uh, has to do this under duress. That's not free speech. It's a health crisis, because it's remapping our brains. Paul has a better understanding. Instead of acting out on that sexual impulse, say, God, I want to take a moment and thank you. And if you do that over and over and over again, it changes your neural pathways. It changes your soul. How can we overcome sexual brokenness? We can overcome sexual brokenness with gratitude to God. It's not easy. But it's possible. Paul gives us one more reason, one more way, one more thing that's really important. Verse 18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, his, so his argument here, he says, hey, don't, we talked about this a little bit last week, but he says, don't substitute your sexual impulses or, or sexual sin for like substance abuse, okay? It's like, well, I guess I can't do that anymore. Now I'm going to go abuse substances, right? Like he's like, no, 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 that's not a good idea. <laughs> but that's often what happens is, is uh, when you stop once and another one comes up, he's like, no, don't do that. He says, be filled with the spirit. Okay, how are we filled with the spirit? How are we filled with the spirit? And he gives us the answer here in verse nine. It's group sing. Sing in large groups. <laughs> That's what he says. Addressing one another in psalms. Those are songs. Hymns, also songs. And spiritual songs, <clears throat> also songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's saying you need to have these holy relationships. You can be filled with the Spirit if you have these holy relationships. Now, what is that like? Okay, a number of years ago, uh, Kristen and I, I don't remember if we were married or dating. I think we were dating. My parents uh, wanted to buy, wanted to take the whole family down to go see Spamalot on Broadway. We were like, oh, cool. I like Mighty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, we'll go to that. Okay. So I'm going there. I don't know why I'm not sitting next to my girlfriend, later wife, or wife at the time. I can't remember. <laughs> but it must have been girlfriend at the time. I don't know why I'm not sitting next to her, but I'm not. I'm sitting next to my mother. Fine. And we're watching this, and it's funny and everything. And then, if you've seen the Broadway play, there are some really body scenes in there. Sexually explicit scenes. And I'm sitting next to my mom. Do you know how uncomfortable that is? It's like, oh, please stop. Please stop. In all my struggles, I'm never, ever, in the presence of my mom, 
on my phone going, you know, I'm going to I'm going to look at dirty pictures with my mother, right? Like, it's never going to happen. Why? Because she's my mom, and I respect her, and I love her, and she's a godly woman. Well, the church, Jesus said, is a family. It's a family. And when you're with your family, you're not experiencing that same level of temptation. So we have phones now. If you feel an impulse, call someone, text someone. Hey, I'm struggling. Hey, can you pray for me? You don't even have to be specific about it. Sure, I'll pray for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're a family, and when we're in the presence of family, that's not where we, we feel the need to sin. When do we feel the need to sin? When we're alone, we're isolated, or we're a small group, and we're like-minded people? That's when we feel the impulse to sin. Paul says, get together with your church family. That will help. I miss hymnals. Not because of a philosophical thing. Uh, we can put any of those songs up. Oh, I left that up there. Neural pathways, ah. <laughs> uh, not because of any philosophical thing. We can always put the songs up there from there. But what I do miss is when Kristen and I were dating. You didn't know you were going to feature so much into this message. I'm sorry. Um, when Kristen and I were dating at both of the churches that we attended, they still had hymnals. And whenever we would sing from a hymn, we would hold the hymn book together and under the book, surreptitiously, so that no one could see, but in truth, everyone could see, we would hold hands under the book. <laughs> it's fantastic. It was wonderful. And you know what? It was good because we were dating, right? And so it would have been inappropriate for us to have a sexual relationship at that point. But as we're, we're worshiping God together with a book, holding hands in church, there wasn't anything untoward that was happening. We weren't like, okay, I'm overcome, and start making out in the pew, right? That didn't happen. No, what happened, it was a sanctified touch. We were worshiping God together. And something happened when you do that in church. I, I, I really think that, that really bonded us in a, a wonderful way where Christ came and uh, honored us as we honored him. Some of you might be saying, well, wait a minute, you know, this is hard. Um, I just want to be able to pursue who I want to pursue in whatever context I want to pursue. We have so many more options than the Bible gives us here uh, today. You know, what's so wrong with that? What's wrong? What? God doesn't call sin, sin because he's a killjoy. God doesn't call sin, sin because he wants to ruin your life. He calls sin, sin because he knows it ruins our lives. He knows it damages us. He knows it hurts us. Paul isn't saying this so strongly because he's like, I want nobody to have fun. He's saying this because he knows that sex outside of marriage will ruin your soul. I mean, forget the body. If you want to go, if you want to have a fun time, go look up STD rates on the CDC government website. It's an epidemic. It's an epidemic. It is an epidemic. It costs billions of dollars a year. Billions of dollars a year out of the economy. Do you know how much better our economy would be if we didn't have billions of dollars of money that we had to spend? You know how much better all of us would be and how much lower our premiums would be for insurance if we didn't spend billions of dollars every year in treating STDs? But forget that. And again, it happens. And I, I'm, not, I'm not here to shame anyone. It's just, it's part of the reality of life. God is saying, hey, this is not working for you guys. And yet it is an epidemic according to the CDC. And it's not reported on because it is such an epidemic and it's everywhere. But it ruins your soul. That's why God says, don't do it. I love you. I want you to have the best life possible. 
It's like a fire. Fire is a good thing in the right context. Marriage, sex within marriage is like a fire inside of a fireplace. I don't know who came up with the metaphor, but it's a good metaphor. Sex in marriage is like a fire in a fireplace, at least optimally. It's protected, it gives warmth, it gives heat, it's safe, it's protected. Sex outside of marriage is taking that same fire, moving it 10 feet into the middle of the, the living room. It can burn everything down. It's, it can be destructive, incredibly so. That's why God is saying, look, I don't want you to destroy your soul. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. This is the best way. It's just the way it is. And look, I'm not saying that if the, the answer to the most fulfilling, best sex you've ever had in your life is to get married, right? Because there are bad people out there and there's bad marriages out there. I understand that. God understands that. However, the best chance to enjoy God's gift of sex is within marriage. And Paul is saying to us here, hey, you can overcome sexual immorality through holy relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, there is no society that I'm aware of. Actually, no, I'm going to be so bold as saying there is no society that has ever gotten sex correct, ever. There never has been. You look at the Old Testament, you look at, uh, um, you look at Israel and you look at Judah, and they, uh, they pretty quickly like, fall into polygamy, right? Which if any, anyone ever says, well, there's polygamy in the Bible, and what about that, right? Are you guys, that's biblical marriage, right? No. Every time you see polygamy in the Bible, it is always negatively portrayed. Always negatively portrayed. Always, 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 always. He sh God shows the problems of a polygamist marriage. Always. It is never like, hey, we're all getting along. And I like to cook. And I like to fold clothes. Hooray, this is all unison. It's always a problem in the Bible. Always. God tolerated it for a time, but it's always a problem. God's design, Genesis 2, 1 and 2, right from the beginning, it was a man and a woman in marriage. That was his plan. That was his design. There's never been a society that's gotten this correct. So don't look back and like, those Victorians, they got it right. No, don't do that. The Puritans, they got it right. No, they didn't. Because the Puritans were more pro-sex within marriage than, than the Victorians were and, and their Catholic friends at the time. Um, but the Puritans maybe went, took it too long because we have records where wives were suing their husbands for not having enough relations with them, and then the courts were ordering their husbands to have more relations with their wives. That doesn't seem healthy to me, bringing the courts into, the, into your, your love life. <laughs> uh, no culture has ever gotten this right. I think individuals have. But again, we go back to what I said to begin, to begin with. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're all broken sinners in need of transformation through Jesus. We all are. And that can be bad news, but it can be good news too because we're all in the same boat. We all need Christ's forgiveness. We all need Christ's transformation. I need Christ's forgiveness as much, if not more, than all the rest of you. I get it. And it's hard. And it's difficult. But it is a good gift that God has given us to be enjoyed within marriage. And look, I'm not here... Paul's not here to beat anyone up. If you are here and you are struggling, more than happy to walk alongside you. If you're here and you're in a relationship and it's going in a way it shouldn't go, stop. If it's appropriate, do the right thing and marry the person. If it's not, you got to end the relationship. You got to end the relationship. I get it. It's not easy. It is hard. It is difficult. But I'll make you a promise. I will walk alongside you 
And I know many in this church would walk alongside you as well. It's worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. And what he offers us is better than anything, any momentary time of pleasure that the world can or that a relationship can. We can overcome sexual immorality, sexual brokenness, with thanksgiving to God, gratitude to God, retrain our minds over and over and over again, and our minds, our souls will be transformed. It will be messy, it will be ugly, but it will work. And we can also overcome it through the relationships, the holy relationships we have with each other. Gratitude changes our lives. Let's pray. Father, there is too much to say and not enough time to say it, but Father, I humble myself before this congregation and I pray that you will continue to change my mind and change my heart and help me to be thankful and grateful and to seek out the support of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray for us as a congregation. Father, I know, I can tell, I can feel it. The tension in this room. This isn't easy. It wasn't easy when you told this to the Israelites as they were wandering through the desert thousands of years ago. It wasn't easy when Paul said this to the church in Ephesus where the air that they breathed was filled with unfettered sexual desire and activity. I freely admit that we are not powerful enough, that we are not wise enough, that we don't even love you enough to want to follow after you and trust you in this. So God, the Holy Spirit, I will ask that you transform my heart, transform our hearts, convince us of your truth where where my own personal words fail. I pray, Father, that you will fill us with such gratitude for what you have done, what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I pray that you change us and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.